One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 281st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Deanna Bechtel, Joe Harris, Cody Flores Jaragui, and Josh Tanner. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Corey Adelson on the show. She's a development executive over at Chernin Entertainment. She's the executive behind the smash hit Netflix trilogy, Fear Street. It's, it's got a very interesting story of how she managed to manifest that that project to life and to fruition. And I think it's a really good story of how how things get made basically in the similar trajectory of what it takes a for an executive to rise to the top and to actually get something made and and how to champion something so if you're curious about the way that development works if you're curious about the way that things get made if you're curious about the way that things get pitched or the the politics of it i think that Corey has a ton of interesting insight she came up as an assistant and so it's a very common story that we don't have on the show very frequently which is really nice so we kind of get into the game that is hollywood she's really fun she's so funny she's so passionate i think it's a good uh, reminder that in order to be a development executive you have to love movies just as much as we love making them it's just a, a yeah. different i'd say more yeah frankly more yeah you really do have to hustle pretty darn hard for a long time before you get anything good on on the table. Yeah, what I found interesting is obviously before we talked to Corey, I looked her up on IMDb, and she has these producing credits on Fear Street, these like big Netflix movies. And from her bio, I knew she'd been in the business for a long time. But you know, in development, you don't get a lot of IMDb credits because you're just trying to get things made for years and years. And then when we talked to her, and she worked for Fox, she worked for Paramount, she's worked for all these crazy people working on these huge projects. It's just interesting to hear about that. I, like, obviously, we are kind of exposed to it, you know, when if we write a script, and we're trying to sell it to someone or send it out or pitch a show or get reps. We, we're exposed to the agency world a little bit. But we, we really don't live on that side of Hollywood as filmmakers, you know, as freelancers as independent, you know, artists, I guess, not to sound too artsy fartsy about it but it, it was really fun to talk to Corey and and i didn't even realize she was married to paul briganti previous guest of the show you gave me a hard time you're like i told you that a hundred times I, I, that, but that's i know true, a lot of pauls okay <laughs> yeah oh, but only one of them do i call briganti <laughs> so <laughs> that's okay that's okay you had a lot on your plate lately no big deal well yeah, well, speaking of, of having a lot on our plates, I just wanted to talk real quickly about time management. I know it's something we've 
touched probably on the podcast a while ago, definitely pre-COVID, but I'm running into kind of crazy time management issues. Literally, as we speak, I have a baby strapped to my chest. I'm holding a pacifier in his mouth, just praying he doesn't start screaming. My wife is at work. My in-laws took my daughter to swimming practice. We just came back from COVID test for the first day of kindergarten. You know, I have five edits due tonight. I have family things going on this weekend. And then I'm starting a new job, commercial job on Monday, while also continuing an existing commercial job. Luckily, everything I have coming up is in LA, so I don't have to fly anywhere. But how do you just like even scheduling the meetings and um, this other job that I'm finishing up is the East Coast company. So like my calendar is just it looks wide open on Monday. And then by the time I get to Wednesday, it's like I'm squeezing in 15 minute things at a time. Yeah. Trying to record a podcast, trying to do all these things. And then at the same time, you still need to like get inspired and read the news and socialize have meals which is the hardest mm-hmm. thing to do yeah uh, be a parent all of that stuff yeah i you know it's it's tricky because I th- what's the secret i think that there is a if you have too much time on your hands if you're unemployed essentially um and you're feeling listless or or defeated in some way i find that really really hard it's very hard for me to be productive when i have nothing going on and if i am overextended obviously that's really hard as well i'm kind of in a sweet spot right now where i'm on one challenging fruitful decently paying job and so i'm still my personal projects are lagging behind because of it but i'm active i'm thinking i'm engaged i'm going the extra mile on that one project but a few weeks ago, I was on two, and it, you do feel the stress of it pretty quickly. Yeah, plus the life stuff. Life like, stuff, it's yeah. The life stuff, and I think we live in an industry, and I've noticed this social movement recently. I don't know if you've been seeing it on Instagram and stuff, people talking about protections from over being overworked, like working 16-hour days on set and being expected to be on set like six hour, late, hour, hour later. There's this culture where we work, especially as freelancers, of you just cannot say no to a job. You know, say yes to every job and figure out how to stack them on top of each other, you know, if you get them. Because so many times you're offered a job and it doesn't happen or you're offered a job and it pushes to next year, you know, or things fall apart. So do you have some sort of litmus test to decide whether you take a job that you're offered or what more often than not happens is we're not offered jobs to have. It's not like, hey, Matt, Will you work on this? It's more like, hey, Matt, you I have an opportunity this? for you. Yeah, will you pitch yeah. on this? Yeah. Will you spend three days on this job that you might not get? Unfortunately, my litmus test, I think, is the same as yours, and it's a bad one, is am I technically free that day? Am I shooting on the days that they want to shoot or not? And that's most of it. Tech Scout, auditions, there's a few things that you can kind of move around, and I'm always upfront with a producer when those jobs come up. That's kind of the main thing, to be honest. And it's not, that's a bad way of, of managing your time. But I'm with you, man. I think it's a thing where... Well, let me ask you, let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Then we can move on because I know this is a problem without a solution. But let's say next Tuesday you are shooting a short film. You've got this actor that is only available this one day and you've been dying to work with them and you think you, your whole short is based on them. You're shooting that on Tuesday. You have a, in LA on Thursday... You have a commercial in Dallas, and on Saturday, you have a wedding in Seattle. Do you 
how, do you just make all of those things work or do you try to pull out of something? Yeah, I try to make all of those things work. But uh, certainly, I think once you're committed with a personal project, when you have a shoot day, you have to treat that like any other job. I think a better question is, you're going to shoot a short in two weeks. You've been trying to get this actor. They're locked in. They're ready to go. And then a paying job comes up. That's a that's a harder question. And I think you still have right. to go. And a paying job with a company that you've been wanting to work with. And this is the first time they've actually come. That's to a you. heck of a lot harder. And it depends on what the payday is also. Like, you know, there's a handful of paid jobs where you're like, okay, well, I can afford to not take that. And then there are ones where you can't afford to turn them down. And I think that's a that's a harder problem. The last thing I want to say about this, though, because I think it's it's going to be different for each person. And I think I think of uh, Kara Durrett, who was on the show re- recently, talking about how, you know, the question of how much money do you actually need is, is valid and important. And I think it's a little different when you've got kids or a mortgage or you're freelance and, you, you know, you're less certain of where your next paycheck is coming from. But that question is still important. But the other thing to think about, Oren, and we talk about this all the time on the show, is those personal projects are the reasons that you level up. They're the reasons that you upgrade. They're the reasons that you're in it in the first place, right? And so if you don't dedicate the time to your screenplay or your short or your spec or your proof of concept, those are the things that where you're paying yourself. Those are the passion projects that will lead to bigger and better things. And if you skip out on those investments early on or ever, you know, then eventually it's going to catch up to you. And I feel like uh, over the last few years, I've been reminded of that. And I would say that lately, now that things are busy again, I have to be re-reminded of it because I spent the pandemic doing a good job of really investing my time in personal projects that I think will really generate bigger results for my career. And now that I'm getting paid to do other things, it's a heck of a lot easier to not follow up in an email or not hustle as hard as I should be, you know? And that's, that's the real question is how do you figure out how to push that stuff forward? And that's frankly something that Corey Adelson in this episode talks a lot about, that you have to spend 10% of your working time investing in Corey Adelson entertainment, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that would be an excellent segue into our interview if I didn't have one more thing to add, <laughs> which is that, Yes, of course, it's nice to get paid to direct. And that's kind of the the dream job that we more or less have. But the thing is, for me, it's not about, oh, I'm going to I want to take this job because it's a big payday and I'm going to turn down this job because it's a small, low budget thing. To me, the big payday only serves to overcome a job I'm not interested in. Like if, if a job paid nothing, but I think the creative is cool or cool talent or cool location, cool something, I'm usually in. To me, it's a fear I kind of learned from like when I first moved to LA like 15 years ago. It's the idea that if I say no to someone, they won't come back to me. And it's a way that a lot of people in Hollywood prey on new filmmakers and new workers and they, hey, you know, we can't pay you for this, but come shoot this concert and edit this thing together. Are you ready for... I have this bigger job coming Are you up. ready for the horrible truth, Oren? <laughs> yes. Even if you say yes, they might not come back to you. Right. But one of one of those gives you an opportunity to do a good job. And the other one is a hope, <laughs> a hope that somebody else that they take doesn't do a good job, you know? Yeah, fair enough. But you hear my point, 
right? Like that you don't really have a ton of control. And like if they wanted to work with you in the first place, it's because the work that you've done thus far is is of a high enough quality that they're interested in working with you, right? Yeah, or I happen to have the right thing on my reel for the project they're doing, or I know a person. But I mean, they do say that kind of success is a, about is when talent meets opportunity, right? Sure. Is that a thing that people say? I think that is a thing that people say. And so you can't show people the talent without the opportunity. And so it's hard to turn opportunities down, even if they don't pay well or they're hard to fit into the schedule. Yeah, I, I and I think you're right about both of us, I think, put creative first um, relative to paydays. So that is a, a valid and tricky question, Oren. But, um, you know, there's no good answer to it. So, yeah. Well, if you want to hire me for the rest of August, I am unavailable. (laughs) (laughs) And if you would like to hire me for the last week of August, you know, hit me up. Sounds good. Yeah. August 27th. I'm available. Oh, it's my mom's birthday. (laughs) That's the thing. As you get older, it's not that there's so much more work. It's just there's so many other non-work. You have so much more life. Yeah, sure. There's stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Let us know how you guys do it. What's your strategy for saying yes and no to jobs if you're listening to this, especially if you're a freelancer and you have various opportunities at different various levels that satisfy various needs in your life and how you juggle it all. We'd love to hear. We're just shootingpod at gmail.com. Yeah, let us know. Um, before we hop into our conversation with Corey, Oren, did you know that we have a Patreon? Yeah, I literally send the names of the patrons. Uh, that sponsor that, that patronize this episode. I guess this, is, this, this is a pretty hacky transition. Deanna, but, Joe, Cody, and John. Listen, man, it's pretty hot in my apartment. I'm uh, doing the best I can. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot a Pod is a place where you can go to support the show a little bit. Support our editor, Sarah. Shout out to Sarah. She's still at it, cutting away this show, making it better every single episode. And uh, we really appreciate it. We've been making some upgrades to the show that hopefully you've noticed by now. Um, Our ads are a little cleaner. Things are a little bit better. And so all of that is thanks to you and your support on Patreon.com. If you want to show uh, the world how much you love the show, go ahead and spend 10 bucks. Then we'll send you a hat just like Oren does from from his very apartment where he is or his home where he is uh, currently bouncing his baby and recording this episode. So. It's a, it's more of a rock. Yeah, sure. Than a bounce. All right. Well, without further ado, we will hop into perhaps an ad or two, and then our conversation with Corey. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on our show. Congrats on Fear Street. Thank you so much. Way to scare America. Yeah. And three times. (laughs) <laughs> you scared us thrice. So you're so you're a producer, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into producing and your background? Sure. I studied theater in college. I always loved storytelling. I grew up on film. I grew up in LA, so it was kind of a part of my DNA and maybe the only thing I thought people were possible that it was possible to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it was kind of the opposite scenario of many people being like I never thought I could work in film like I only knew that that was what was possible that was the only job anybody had. <laughs> yeah. you're like yeah. yeah but you're not a real accountant right that's like a, <laughs> a role you're playing yeah exactly I was like but there's only producing I don't know what else is mm-hmm. there were your parents in entertainment yeah they were my my mother was a producer my father was a producer my mm-hmm. uncle my grandpa I have a very long lineage mm-hmm. in my family of producers and I deeply didn't want to follow their path. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, fuck you guys. I want nothing to do with any of you. And then I went to college and I came home and I started, I was a intern at Paramount Vantage and I was reading all these incredible scripts mm-hmm. and they had such amazing taste and amazing ambitions there. And I was reading all the stuff that I love and I came home and I said to my parents, I, this is the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. And they go, that's producing. You're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally fucked. So All this time that you've been trying to rebel, yeah. it's not going to work. You're, it's, de- it's destiny. But um, yeah, I, I just fell in love. And I, I, I've always loved film. I've always loved movies. And my, I went to, I saw movies alone by myself in theaters for my entire life. And then came back to it through through this internship and then started to um i worked at paramount Wait, is paramount vantage that wasn't the hundred thousand dollar scary movie one no 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 yeah it's like they have amazing taste <laughs> right what <laughs> was that one i'm they thinking made of 17 paranormals <laughs> yeah yeah what um, <laughs> was that what was that called i'm trying to remember now yeah it, no i know what you're talking about but i i don't know it was um it was more like it was actually the it was the subsidiary of the studio that made the most expensive indie art films that have ever been made Mm -hmm. in the history of Hollywood. And it was kind of a like a charmed place that Mm -hmm. just made really cool shit. And then Adam Goodman, who was the the president of Paramount, he basically came in while I was an intern at that place and shuttered it. So while I was an intern, I was like moving out their boxes (laughs) and (laughs) 
<laughs> and being like, Hollywood seems awesome. It seems really cool here. Yeah. It seems like you guys get to make really amazing things. Um, yeah. It's like you guys have a new boss every seven years, though. This is crazy. Really disheartening um, way to come into the industry. But he he was sort of the proponent of of the paranormal movies and the mm-hmm. Justin Bieber era of Paramount. Like he wanted to make money instead of art, more than art. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, oh, you guys are making a hundred million dollar art films. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I would like to make the Bieber film that is going to make <laughs> you know, $200 million and is produced for five. And so that was a sort of depressing reality. And then, um, so I worked there and then kind of, that started my intent and passion to work against that idea as much as humanly possible. So I worked at Paramount for a couple of years, and then I went to go work at Universal. So the president of production there, I worked for him for about two years. And then... Um, and when you say you worked for him, you were like his assistant, like on his desk or... Yeah, yeah. I was his second assistant, and I was his second assistant for two years, a year, I like basically a year into it, I told him I need to go work for someone who's going to promote me. Like I need to go Mm -hmm. work for be someone's first assistant because how am I ever going to get like, I need to, I need to keep moving. And and he goes, who will you ever work for? That's better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Just yeah, like, what are you talking about? Just stay with me for one more year. (laughs) That's what I say to every crew member I've ever (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wait, but... Unfortunately, like work. <laughs> um, but Corey, I, I'm curious. Believe it or not, this is episode 281. We have, even though you, the, it's such a common story that people came up be, by working at desk at you know CAA or whatever, or the mailroom. That whole story, the Tarantino version. We actually haven't had a ton of people that came up that way. Can you tell us, like, for someone that just graduated film school and wants to be a producer, or, or, or however they they want to be a producer? How do you get an assistant job like that? How do you become a second assistant to the president of Paramount? Mm-hmm. And a follow-up question, the difference between a second and first assistant. Sure, but I can answer yeah. both questions. Um, when I was at Paramount, what I learned was that it was a really relationship-based business. And so mm-hmm. in working for, I was working for two junior executives there and every single assistant that I emailed with at agencies, at studios, at wherever, I would always, you know, anyone who had the even slightest interest of hanging out with me, I would try to hang out. I would try to get drinks or try to get lunch or try to do, I try to connect with them somehow so I could start to build friendships and relationships with people that I had respect for, that I felt had similar taste to me or had similar ambition to me that I felt were, we were a part of the same kind of same school of thought. And can I ask you? Sorry to interrupt, but like a real dumb question. And I know, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. Do you just email like another assistant and say, hey, do you want to go get a drink? And is there like any... Corey's nodding yes. Is there this any is, tension? It, it is a common thread of like, that. Or and I both are like, wait, how do you actually make friends with people in Hollywood? <laughs> no, no. But, but is there a tension if it's like a male assistant that asks you out, like, you know, how how do you navigate dating versus getting drinks versus networking and all that stuff? Unbelievably complicated. And I was so happy when like I met Paul and that was like not a part of the equation anymore. That was a really, um, it, it helped not being so complicated, but no, it's, it's really like, I think when you're, 
when you're working for someone, you're in the trenches together and you're like, you're all trying to make shit happen and trying to both appease your bosses and also like follow protocol and, Mm -hmm. and politic about who sort of like, there's kind of a, a very set hierarchy of scheduling in the assistant game where it's like, okay, if you're a studio assistant, the producers need to sort of, you give them the times and then Mm -hmm. they must agree to your times. And that's, it's like, that is sort of, it's the politic of the, the assistant game. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand that it, you people, it becomes complicated. And so you're, you're in, you're in this thing with these people trying to be like, my boss wants to set for tomorrow. Your boss wants to set this for a week from now. What do we, how do we figure this out? So it ends up kind of being like you, you get a sense of people's personalities in that Mm -hmm. process. And yeah, it's like you basically, if anyone shows a, just an iota of personality or, Mm -hmm. or eagerness to connect, you're kind of like, oh, you're my people. And you say like, can we get drinks after work? Like, I would love to Mm-hmm. talk to you and it's also um a way of bringing information into your boss that's valuable to them it's part of the job right it's, it's like, totally like, part of the job oh just one last d- dumb question and then we'll get to the good questions when i know you're years beyond that but is there are there places where like assistants go to get drinks is there like i remember at trader vix used to be a thing do you, you know, it's not there anymore, but I remember it just like, because my, my in-laws love Trader Vic's and every once in a while you just see like a swarm of like 23 year old assistants just like getting hammered on tiki drinks in Beverly Hills. Yeah, you get so drunk. That's like the only way, <laughs> the only way to kind of like make friends is just you, you get so drunk together and just, you know, talk about how terrible your bosses are and how shitty the circumstances are and how all of that stuff. I don't really remember, actually. It's just so long ago. I think it was like, I remember going to Fairfax a lot. I remember going to Fairfax a lot and like La Brea a lot somehow. But no, you would, it's like a, it's a trading of information and information is collateral and it's very valuable to your bosses because assistants will tell you things and you'll share information with assistants in a way that executives are too guarded to do and can't do really because you guys like the relationship building and the trust building comes from being like okay i need this for my my boss wants me to do this impossible thing and i don't know how to like there is no other way to get it done than to have friends mm-hmm. they're just you know you have to sort of it, it's like a it's a it's a trade off you have to say i have this information if you, if I trust you with this and you won't burn me then I, and I won't burn you, then you tell me like how the new Mission Impossible ends <laughs> and I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's sort of like that. My, my, when I went to go work at Universal for Peter Kramer, the first thing he asked me and I love him, he's my, he's just my, a mentor and the best person I've ever worked for and just a wonderful, wonderful person. But he, um, he the first day on the job he said because i worked on mission impossible at paramount with my bosses were on the movies and he um he goes tell me how it ends i need to know if it's anything like (laughs) these five (laughs) movies that i'm working on and i had just left them and i was so loyal to them and i was so loyal to the studio and i love that Mm -hmm. studio so much and i was like 
completely panicked. <laughs> and then it was this moment of just being like, okay, um, I work for you now. <laughs> sure. you know, my loyalty lies with you now. It's, it's over now. I got to admit, I'm kind of shocked that someone would care like how Mission Impossible well, ends. But think about it. If if your movie ends with like a crazy helicopter set piece, that would be a problem if you're spending no, hundreds but, of millions of dollars. But by that point, by the time they people get to the ending, they've already paid for the movie. Well, the the what relevance to him, the relevance <laughs> to him was how does that Mission Impossible movie end? Because we are developing these three like big caper movies that end in a like let's say a big helicopter set piece and i want to know if that movie has a big helicopter sequence so we don't look stupid mm-hmm. and like it's you know it's we're coming out after them and i want context to have uh, an understanding of the marketplace at large and have an understanding of how that's going to impact our future releases so like information is everything and that's that's like information is power basically yeah. so that's sort of Corey, what it is you said something that i want to highlight you said they don't want to look stupid Right. And that's really that's the whole thing. Or, or and you're like, what's the big deal? Like box office is box office. It doesn't matter if you look stupid. That's that is the that's the other currency. Right. That's the other collateral. A hundred percent. My I I work for Peter Chernin and Peter always says, like, I, I've asked him many times, what is the source of his drive and his ambition and what what? makes him keep doing the thing and he said i just really don't want to be embarrassed <laughs> he's really <laughs> yeah. he said it's really about yeah. it and he's yeah. so prolific and he's such a like brilliant guy and he um that's it he's just like i don't want to be embarrassed that's it yeah i love it one other thing that i think is worth pointing out because like orin said we haven't had a ton of people who came up as assistants on the show what i love about your story and what cl- it clarified for me is like you there even though it wasn't maybe written down anywhere or necessarily prescriptive there was a clear hierarchy you are learning the social rules of hollywood and i i kind of came in sideways and was working at comedy central for a long time but didn't ever get that opportunity to observe and i just constantly felt like everyone's speaking another language and i don't know it felt like my fly was down for five years <laughs> You know what I mean? Totally. The first time someone says like left word, you're like, what the fuck like, does that mean? I don't about? even yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I don't know. There's like there's such a lingo and a uh, language mm-hmm. to the to the industry or like I didn't know the difference between a spec script or mm-hmm. a sample or mm-hmm. a you know, you had to like like you learn you you there's no way to know any of this stuff. Like it is not taught, <laughs> it is completely observed mm-hmm. and it is like it is really school. Like that's what it feels mm-hmm. like. It feels like you're going through school, and then and you internalize. What's that it. term? What's that term for calling a bunch of people back? Rolling calls. Yeah, like where you have a list of people you got to get. Yeah, yeah, it's like putting it on the phone sheet. We're gonna roll calls, and then you like call your assistant, and you go roll calls on the phone sheet. And is that still a thing though? Like, do people still roll roll calls? That's fun. I yeah. wrote. I still. I wrote calls today. <laughs> <laughs> you, wrote, <laughs> you you were driving on your way to set over the hill. Even oh, man. worse, I was in my house being like, "Let's roll calls." <laughs> I'm curious, Corey. Actually, since you started, uh, which was you know a little while ago, 
has the business shifted to be more email based than call based or if or is a big deal like an important transaction still going to happen on a phone call like is it a bit is it a bigger deal if an agent or a manager calls you than if they email you i think it's both personal style and strategy based for example i i find that calling people you can get you get a more like personal interaction with people and you get to express passion in a different way but then there's also times where you it's there's a more effective communication by just being sort of succinct and direct without giving the opportunity for back and forth so mm-hmm. it's like it really depends what your what your agenda is and what your objective is but also isn't there like people under the age of 30 don't talk on the phone like if there's a hot new writer or director or someone no i actually you know oddly i haven't found that it's changed that much i find that like people prefer emailing usually because it's faster it's more efficient Mm -hmm. you know when you call someone you can end up being on the phone with them for 15 minutes because there's like the obligatory Mm -hmm. (laughs) like bullshitting in the beginning of a conversation that has to happen um without so it doesn't feel so impersonal so it is a it is a faster form of communication, but but I always find that a phone call does the job better. So I'm more and and it's to me it's a better indication of your passion and your personality and all of those mm-hmm. things, and it's a great way to get to know people. So I I I call mostly, um, and then I email when it makes sense. And um, but I it's people have it's so weird because there really is no guidebook to the job you really Mm -hmm. kind of figure it out as you go along what works for you but to answer your question about going from paramount to universal and how i got that job it's a weird thing because they're they tell you in the beginning of the like you ask people how to get jobs because it feels so it feels intangible because there is no it there it doesn't right there's no help wanted sign on the wall of no so you like you don't know where to find those really cool jobs it's like it's nearly impossible so that's sort of where the relationship building comes in and in your assistanting jobs and and then also i found a really effective way and part of the way that i got the job at universal was i used to go on deadline every day and i would look Mm -hmm. at who had gotten a new deal somewhere who had just gotten promoted who had moved jobs like that stuff was all reported so you can assume that if someone is moving a job, you could be like, okay, are they going to take their assistant with them? Maybe Mm -hmm. they won't. If they don't, they're probably going to need one. Who do I know at this company? Who do I know that knows someone at this company? How do I get through to them in a way that's personal and not a part of like a bigger batch of... You're not just jumping on LinkedIn is what you're saying. No, it's it's like you you need to kind of be very strategic about how your resume gets on the desk of someone important because they they don't have a lot of time and there's a lot of incoming interest and you kind of want to... It needs to somehow rise to the top. So in the process, I mean, before I worked at Paramount, I was working like in between my internship and coming back to Paramount, I worked at an agency called Innovative Artists. And I was there for about six months before I went to Paramount. But that was like, that was my first job. And it was sort of like a job begets a job, just take a job, just Mm -hmm. take a job, whatever job you get, they were like, 
you'll make $2,000 a year. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Wait, an innovative artist, they, they mainly represent actors, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I had no interest in doing that at all. But I kind of like, it's sort of like whatever entry point into the industry you can get, it's all very related. And it's all very, um, yeah, in, from an assistant level, you're still, you're still sort of, like, even if you're, yeah, even mm -hmm. if you're working for a talent agent, you're still reading all of the, the material that comes in through their desk and starting to get to know writers and get to know names and all of that stuff. I'm actually curious about that because you've been on both sides probably of attaching talent and, you know, being on the talent side, trying to get people attached to, uh, to their projects. What you were talking about how to get your resume to the top of the list or how to have a personal connection. What are some things you've seen that have maybe newer filmmakers have done successfully to attach talent to their projects? Is there, are there any like tips or things that you shouldn't do? No, I think it's, I mean, attaching talent is an I mean, it, it all depends again, like what the alchemy of pieces that are together when you're going out to a piece of talent. But I, I always find that a letter to a piece of talent sort of explaining that kind of outlines your passion for the material, your passion for this piece of talent and why you believe them to be mm -hmm. the perfect person for your a film. A love letter. Yeah. A love letter. Everyone loves to be loved. Like that is, that's universal. So I think that's always um, impactful. And you're saying that like, it's so obvious, but Matt, how many times have we heard new filmmakers think that the, the, missing key to get their getting their movie made is to getting a is to get a casting director mm -hmm. that well, will a help them director, a casting director will tell you to write a love letter at the very least yeah <laughs> no it's so not it i, I mean, it's like again it's like there it depends what level of talent you're going for it depends what what the context is but if you're going for a like major piece of talent it's the age-old moniker of relationships it's like who who on their team do you know that's gonna take receive your call and take it seriously you know who or if you don't know those people how do you get your boss to make a call mm -hmm. on your behalf you know how do you convince them that um it's not going to make them look stupid to advocate for you or your project or whatever it is and force them like just force them to, to make whatever calls you need them to yeah. make but but what i'm what i'm hearing though that i think is really valuable is like it's still about the connect right it's it's not it's not going to work as a as a cold situation it's not right? about like, the material it it is about the material it's oh i mean it's material is always like it has to be there plus the connect yeah, yeah. it has yeah, to yeah. be there but but it's also Look, this is what I will say. A good script is always a good script. You know, it doesn't matter who it comes in from. A good piece of material is a good piece of material. But what I will say is that what I've found is that executives are busy as fuck and they're like, they are drowning under material. They are drowning under their, their workload and mm -hmm. whatever you can do to cut through the noise and try and make something urgent for people is always impactful you, you said what are they going to take seriously right so they only have time for the things that they can take seriously and the stuff that like they they maybe really want 
they have to that's the that's the only stuff that there's enough hours in the day for yeah i mean it depends who you are but it but i think that's the yeah that's the you you want to make it urgent so mm-hmm. as a producer representing directors you know or being a representative on their behalf you always try to make sure that they're you're positioning a project in a way that makes it impossible for them to ignore so whether that how that's how you build it in advance of sending it out to people or how you develop the material or how you put it together in advance of sending it to that talent that's always important but it's also how you position it like you have Mm -hmm. to there's a huge strategy that goes into approaching each conversation about each project in the sense that you're you're kind of figuring out what each place wants in mm-hmm. advance of that, which executive loves these kinds of projects, which mm-hmm. executive ha- is new to the company. So it doesn't have a lot of projects and needs to impress their boss. So you, you know, like they're, mm-hmm. they're desperate for material and they're, they've called their agent, this, you know, the agency a hundred times to say, I, I really want a romantic comedy or like I need a Christmas movie or whatever it is. Like you kind of have to do your homework to figure out who the peop- who the players are, what they want, what they're looking for, what their needs are, what their you know mm-hmm. uh, insecurities are, all that stuff before you kind of walk in the door. Usually. Go for it, right? And just to clarify, when you say urgency, you do not mean putting a twenty-four hour deadline on an offer. No, 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 no. <laughs> But no, just make, I mean, sometimes it's that too, right? It's like, sometimes it's being like, like when I first started, for example, on Fierce, using Fear Street as an example, when I first optioned that material and I was, I had developed, I mean, we'll get to that probably, but. Uh, let's, let's, let's actually, no, because I, I, I think that Fear Street is, is a perfect lens to illustrate all of the things that you're talking about, right? So let's start at the beginning, the beginning. I think there's kind of a novel story to this, right? But so Fear Street is kind of like a beloved like anthology series right from the like 90s basically it was like rl stein you know he had goosebumps and he had fear street and it was like if you were a little older a little edgier fear street was your shit and if you were like in elementary school you're like oh goosebumps is uh pretty hardcore so i'm, I'm good i'm good with that and so, goosebumps so, had been made into a movie franchise already yes yes yeah so take us back to a time the time before Fear Street was even uh, optioned, let's say. How about that? Let, let's start start at the beginning there. Okay, I was a I was a junior executive at Chernin, which was my first job as an executive, and there were seven senior executives at my company, about roughly. And my 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 old boss Peter Kramer gave me some of the best advice I had ever been given, which was the work never ends. You will be working, you will be, you can be reactive for your entire life as an executive. So 90% of the time you're working for Chernin Entertainment and 10% of the time you're working for Corey Adelson Entertainment. (laughs) So like spend an hour a day, every day, being proactive toward the goals that you want to achieve. So what I realized really quickly is after a year of sort of gaining the confidence of my colleagues and my coworkers and working to support them and working to make sure that and learning so much from them and gaining the tools to become my own advocate, I realized pretty quickly that no one is going to send you material because I am 
the youngest person at the company. There's seven other people who are way more experienced than I am, who have way deeper relationships than I do. And no one is going to call you and be like, hey, I have a package with Leonardo DiCaprio and James <laughs> Mangold. Do you want to produce this? Like, it's just not, that's not what happened. It just doesn't happen. So, But do you not get, I mean, obviously, you know, like a Paul Briganti, you know, these directors that are doing shorts that are doing commercials that are doing cool viral videos that probably have scripts that are kind of up and coming. Are you not, are your friends, like your, your other assistant friends not saying like you're at Chernin, you know, I'm going to send you my script. Yeah, we get, well, I did like I made what, what you're doing as a junior executive is you're meeting absolutely everyone you can. You're building relationships with up and coming talent that hopefully as you grow and as they grow, those will be really enduring relationships that will continue to feed the business. But when when I came up, I was my company's deal was at Fox and mm-hmm. the kind of movies that they were making and the kind of movies that they were making them with were and the kind of movies we were making at the time were it was not possible. You know, it wasn't it, it didn't seem possible to just find a script and run with it and be like, okay, because my, my company didn't, we were such a big company. And because had, you had to have Leonardo DiCaprio and James Mangold. That, that was the only stuff you were making. The right. only yeah. way you were going to get something made is that whether there had to be one element of the equation that was undeniable. So, but are you not the person, sorry to interrupt, but are you not the person that a manager at anonymous content or something just signed a Sun, Sundance director and they have a feature script and they had a premiere. Are you not the person that they send to meet at the company? Always. So I would meet those people and we would fall in love and we mm-hmm. would say, like, what can we do together? And now that I'm more senior in my job, now that's the time where I can do that. Right. So it's like, but back then it, I was working within a system where 10 movies were made a year and they were all IP based and they were all huge directors or huge pieces of tech. There had to be some reason why the studio was forced to make it, you know, and if there's always a success story and I feel that Fear Street ended up becoming that, but it was, but it, it's, um, it's hard. It's really hard because you have to find something also that your bosses are going to care about and take seriously. Mm-hmm. So, so you're like, you're contemplating all of those things at the same time and you're figuring out how do I get, to, how do I push something through this impossible system? Is it, is 10 still the number today, even with the Netflixes and the Hulus? And the- no, now in Netflix, we're, we moved our deal over to Netflix about a year and a half ago or two years ago and they make 72 movies a year. They're, right. they're like, <laughs> you know, it's like- With you guys or with 72 total? They, they make like 70 some movies total a year and they are like it is a completely different universe from the one that we were mm-hmm. operating within at Fox so it's a it's a different world at, but most of the things honestly as we're talking most of the things that I love and the most of the things that I am now making as a more senior person are things that are like relationships that I like the mm-hmm. uh, my next movie that I'm making with A24 in March is a movie that I uh, again, as a CE, I went to a show at UCB and there, mm-hmm. these guys wrote an original musical that was fucking insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the funniest thing I had ever seen in my life and no one knew who they were. They had never done anything before, but it was like, it was just magic in, you know, being there. And so can you tell us it their was names? Like, 
Yeah, their name is Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson. And they wrote a show called Fucking Identical Twins. And it's like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a musical and it's like a send-up of like the parent trap if yeah, Lindsay yeah. Lohan was like an adult man. And yeah, yeah. and like, they're like, it's like in the tone, it's like Matt Stone and Trape. It's like very yeah, like yeah. subversive and fucked up and insane. And <laughs> about like the, the mother has like, her vagina has fallen off at the Parthenon and she's like 75, she's like 75 <laughs> pushing 300 it's like just confusing and weird and all those things and I brought it to my boss when I was really (laughs) junior and I was like we have to make this movie and she was like this is batshit crazy you are out of your mind you can never make this at Fox and somehow I sent it to a junior executive that that worked there that I that I loved who kind of we had a similar sensibility and I said this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life you have to watch it she watched it. I said, it's going to be really cheap. It's going to be a really cheap piece of development. Worst case scenario, you've invested in the next, you know, Matt mm-hmm. Stone and Trey Parker. Worst case scenario, you've made a relationship with the next biggest talent in the world. And she bought it. And it was like a completely anomalous, bizarre situation. But we always knew it wasn't going to get made at Fox. You right, know, we knew right. that that was like, we're going to use their money. We're going to get a script and then we're going to go make it somewhere else that will actually make this movie and invest in it in the way that we want to. So, so there's always, there's always ways to generate material like that and to generate relationships like that. Wait, and now you're making it with turn in an A24. And just to, again, sorry, we are kind of digging into the minutia of things, but I think a lot of our listeners, they hear A24 and they're like, Oh, my favorite movies are A24. I just want to send them my script, but it sounds like to work with A24, you need first to have a developed script with a production company. And like, like how does the relationship work between you guys and A24? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's a specific situation with us in the sense that my, I was working on this movie at Fox. They put it into turnaround because they were like, this is. And Sorry, just to clarify, because it put into turnaround means kind of like, put on the rocks yeah 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 yeah. they said like thanks for playing we're not Mm -hmm. making this movie but you can have this script back and should another studio want to make it they will have to pay us back they owe us the the development money Yeah, yeah yeah so once that happened we were looking for the next home for it and we were always like trying to every meeting that i took with with independent studios just to get to know people i would always bring up this movie and say it was my favorite thing and hoping that someone would share my sensibility at a certain point. And that's when, uh, you know, ultimately 24 came in because we met our executives and there. When you, when you tell people about this movie, do you tell them how much it would cost to make or any talent that's attached or anything? Or you just say, I have a script and that's it. I say, I have a I say, I have the funniest script you will read in your entire life. And like comedies right now suck. <laughs> they just, they like, <laughs> studio comedies suck and they just they're not funny anymore and like don't you want to be inspired and to make something Mm -hmm. really super funny wouldn't it be great to make something so funny yeah yeah i've got yeah so funny like don't you don't you miss watching things you really love that are so funny so that was really it's just that you know and like you sometimes meet people who are like what the fuck are you talking about and sometimes you meet people Mm -hmm. who are like get it and are on your same page and you're like yeah i'd love to make something so funny (laughs) so basically uh all of that to say what i realized was i needed um a piece of material Mm -hmm. that 
would have some IP value at mm-hmm. Fox. And this is, we're still talking about, this is the one hour of your day that you're devoting to Corey Entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I, I went on, I would always go out to like NPR and look at all of the um, the book reviews because mm-hmm. as I said, I didn't feel that anyone was going to like put something on my door sure. that I would fall in love with. So I, um, I kept looking at those reviews always and pouring through them every night when I would get home and be in my, the the me time. And mm-hmm. I found I discovered that R.L. Stein was writing. There was an article that said R.L. Stein is writing new Fear Street books, and oh. I um, I had read them as a child and I, I or a teenager, and I was obsessed with those books. I loved those books. And generally, once you read a book, if you go to Hudson News at the airport and you get something from the bestseller list, there's the odds that someone has already optioned this book are pretty high, right? The 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 odds that somebody optioned it before it was published are very high. I remember when I read when I first moved to LA, I read The Time Traveler's Wife, and I was like. <laughs> this could be pretty good and then this it's like be, Brad like, Pitt and a, Jennifer Aniston bought this like before it was written yeah you're like bro they're the on title. the cover they're on the cover of the, the copy you're reading <laughs> yeah I was yeah. really nerdy so like I what I was my strategy at that time was like what material did I love as a kid so like mm-hmm. what stuff what had had been optioned by producers back in the day and then it didn't work or people, it didn't have traction at that time or people forgot about it. And then it became kind of stale in the, Mm -hmm. you know, or it had some like, yeah, it has cachet, but people had forgotten. And there are kind of like bubbles that come and go, right? There was the time when people are making Hasbro was making like battleship or whatever. Like, I I think that also that, that has to do with the age of executives, like when executives come of age and finally get to be like, Hey, I'm going to make this movie, right? Like, just wait, guys. We're gonna see like a like a Rugrats live action movie or something before you know it. You know exactly. There's like there's like this um there's a really like actually beautiful nature to the thing where it's like executives just like filmmakers are. They were all a reaction to the people that were coming up under where we're saying we don't want to do it like you did it. We want to do it differently. Yeah. I have an awesome Rubik's cube script, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh-huh. like, it's just like you're, you're attached to. Th- I think we all are chasing the things that we were attached to when we were kids, like somehow, in some way, in some fashion. So, this book was close to my heart, and um, I was trying to find material that was picked over and lost that I could revive. And partially, it was the thought that Goosebumps had was in mm-hmm. production mm-hmm. and so part of my thought process was i can tell my i can sell my bosses and i can sell fox on the idea that should goosebumps be a tremendous hit mm-hmm. we will have the next rl stein sure. thing yeah. coming up so i thought i both love this material i love the movies that this remind like the the films mm-hmm. that this evokes for me like in terms of like the the era of horror that i grew up on like uh Scream and Nightmare and mm-hmm. Poltergeist and all of those movies that we all love. So I thought I can both try and capture that feeling and that experience that I grew up on. And also there's a clear plan for how I can um, convince mm-hmm. people that this makes sense. And so... And sorry, uh, another newbie question just to insert 
Is there like a website or somewhere you go to find out if a book has been optioned or if something has not worked? Yes, there's a there's a website called Right Center that is a it's a like a paid subscription and I didn't have a I didn't have a username but if you like ask 20 people one of them will have a <laughs> password <laughs> that you can use or like sure. you you know when you're an assistant you have like tracking groups where you it's a group of assistants that you can email and say mm-hmm. like do you like in search of some in search sure. of this script or, or like a, a password group or something like that yeah, yeah yeah exactly so that was it was like right center you can find out who controls the rights to things so you would go that's like the first stop to figure out whether there's something it has an agent it's you know attached to it that is representing the material that you can call in this case rl stein did not have there was no like leads to get to him like it just was like it was like uh you didn't have an bought. agent it wasn't yeah yeah you yeah. didn't have an agent. It was bought outright by like you. If you do like a cursory Google search, it will tell give you like a kind of brief history of where it had been. That it was like at Disney. It was bought outright by Disney in the '90s when they thought when it was a big sort of smash hit mm-hmm. book series. They had a plan to make a a um, amusement park out of it and to like you know, create a Arl Stein world and all of sure. this stuff. And they spent like millions of dollars on the rights. And then I think when the agenda changes at a studio, sometimes things just become not a part of their, their mandate. And so that this, this book series kind of fell into that category. And then as a result of that, it became nearly impossible to make a film out of it because they had spent so much money on it. And then that money sort of builds over time. So the longer that it stays there, the more money that it is against it or sort of accrues over time. And there was something like $3 million against the book series as, as a starting point. So mm-hmm. if so you're, you have to spend $3 million just to get just started. to get in the door yeah just yeah. to be like well yeah. you don't have to spend, you can create a deal structure in which it's like we will pay you that three million dollars should we go into production mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. if you're a studio executive that is trying to protect their job and not a studio executive that is like uh, trying to create something awesome you're you are um looking at this piece of material and saying okay what what is this it's a probably it's a horror movie uh, what is the budget of a horror movie right now? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. this was the time of Blum. So a horror right. movie budget right. at the it's time of Blum, million yeah, yeah. $6 million. There's $3 million once we go into production against right. this thing. This makes absolutely no sense. Like the second you, <laughs> the second you walk in sure. the door, it's like, it just makes, it just makes no sense. So it requires like a tremendous amount of, um, convincing and and all of that mm-hmm. stuff to try and get at the door and i think because i was so junior and because i had so much like ambition and energy and passion for trying to make something of this thing and it was the only thing i wanted to do i like was just myopically focused on only this and trying to make it happen and did you like find the books and figure out what the movie would be and or, all that stuff yeah yeah wait you, you're 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 gonna step on the punchline oh, sorry sorry yeah, <laughs> but hardly any punchline. But I, I like. Uh, well, well, Corey, ha- how did you get the rights? What, what was the final straw? The punchline. I, um, I treated Earl Stein because I, he didn't. I, like basically, the the people who had 
gotten goosebumps also didn't know somehow how to reach him which was weird and then I noticed that he was um very active on social media so I tweeted at him being like hey <laughs> I'm Corey I work at Chernin I love your books I grew up on your books and he's not he's not following you you're like it's this is a public tweet you're like you're like at R.L. Stein. Can I make these movies? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. My Twitter has zero. T- it's just me. <laughs> and you, all you follow is R.L. Stein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, hey, I'm this human being that you've never met. Is like speaking of cold reach outs. It was sure. the coldest reach out you could possibly have. And and he, oddly, he responded immediately. And- well. He probably Googled you real quick, right? You said, hey, I work at Sherman. Maybe, but I was like, I wasn't even on, there was no, like, there was no record of my existence probably at this <laughs> point. Like, I don't think anyone, like, I, it was not even like. Had you done Spies in Disguise by that point? No, I hadn't done Spies in Disguise at that point. I had done absolutely zero things and reached out to him. And I think he was just probably, like, excited to hear from someone who sure. was wanting to do something like that. And. That it's it was so in the past and he responded right away and said like yeah please reach out to my media manager Yvonne and I reached out to her and um started a dialogue and then brought it into Fox and they passed on it and they were like you guys are absolutely fucking insane there's five five million dollars against it and um she and I kept in touch and I just kept saying like to her basically you and me are in this together. To Yvonne, his person. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Yvonne, you and me are in this together. You go to, please go to Paramount, go to Universal, go to all the different studios and take it in there and try and sell it. Because if you can get one bite, I will get this sold for you, I promise. Wait, but so what is your role? Like, why does she need you at that point? Basically, because I, we, we just, we, we got on. Like, I think I, I, I just, I had a really deep passion for the material and I was like very aggressive about trying to figure it out and how to make it happen. And so I essentially said to her, like, I am, I am your key to making this happen. And I promise you, if you get an offer from another studio, I can convince my studio to make this happen. You can leverage that offer and then you two can be working together. Yeah, yeah. Wait, your studio being Fox. My studio being Fox. I can leverage that offer and I can make sure that Fox will bite. And so we like we took it into basically that happened. So Paramount became interested and then we um, leveraged that offer and then kind of pushed it. It allowed it gave me the momentum to be able to push my bosses, to push Fox, to push everyone to be like, hello, listen, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's competitive now. We'll figure out the rest later. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Don't worry about all that money. We'll figure it out down um, the line. It circles back to your bosses not wanting to look stupid. Corey's been saying, oh, man, let's make Fear Street. Let's make Fear Street. Let's make Fear Street. There's no way they're going to let Paramount go make Fear Street. Exactly. So you, you have to like. So anyway, you push that through under all circumstances. And then part of the... And to be clear, there's no scripts at this point. No, there are no, there's only books. And then part of this, the, my strategy in being like, okay, now I'm this junior executive. I have 200 books that are really expensive. <laughs> it's my first project. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to look stupid. How do I make this happen? There's literally 200 of them? 200 books. And you you have the right to make any movie out of any book. 
correct. So I, we have the rights to the entire series of books. And so I started to think about how am I going to, how am I ever going to make this, get this made now that I have it? And was there never a TV show like where it's like each book is an episode? Like it was, it was like, no, it was developed in like a million different ways and things. Yeah. It was called, are you afraid of the dark? And no one had to pay Earl Stein for it. You know, like seriously, like it, you know, it's a horror anthology. So it's like, you know, you could just make your own unless you really want to call it fear. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I saw I saw an opportunity like this was in the age of the beginning of the universe conversation. And mm-hmm. I saw and by universe, you mean Marvel Cinematic Universe, DC Universe, Universal Monsters, even everyone was trying to like, you know, find the next giant franchise based yeah. Jam universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, and I, and I, I kind of was always, and I think it's what we're always all trying to do is how do I marry my creative soul and ambition and, and mm-hmm. desires with their business ambitions? You know, how do you mm-hmm. like, how do you find a way to make those two things merge in a way? And that, so it becomes like, okay, I, cringe at the idea of saying the word universe it makes me want to die inside like mm-hmm. it's my it's my nightmare to to um sure. say that word out loud some for whatever reason it just feels like i just hate it so i was trying to think okay what's my version how can i like keep my integrity and mm-hmm. and also pursue an idea like that and what i started to get really excited about is what's my version of that? Like, how do I create my version of, of that, that actually feels or not actually feels, I mean, there's clearly like Marvel is Marvel is King. So there's, there's no, I'm like, what is my version where I can crush Marvel? Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but, but what makes sense for you? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I think what, that, makes, what can make me like, what can get me turned on about this? That can make right. me like that can sustain a process like this. Right. I mean, the good thing and the the terrible thing about universes, it's it's kind of the same. It, the problem is that like the only movies we're making right now are Marvel movies or whatever, right? But the cool thing is that means you get to make a spy movie and like a supernatural Doctor Who ripoff in the same year, right? So, so the gift of something like Fear Street is you get to do you get to dabble right you get to do like what if someone said to you hey Corey, what if you got to make three radically different horror movies you'd be like fuck yes sign me up what if they're all called fear street okay sure great that is exactly it It was like awesome like we get to make three horror like it became this thought of okay I need to sell Fox on the idea of that this can be more than one film because Mm -hmm. the budget of one film is the budget that is already against it. So how do I present... Um, Spend more money so you can make even more money, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it was that. And then we um, we got into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, wild. Okay, so then, boy, I feel like we could talk to you for forever. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the same director for all three films, correct? Yes. Yeah, Lee Janiak. Mm-hmm. So h- how do you... How do you... But And like we said, like they're three drastically different styles and there there's you know things that kind of are unifying them but like it's three kind of different genre send-ups right and send-up isn't the right word but styles how do you find a single person who can do all three of those and why do you think that they're the one to do it and why one director 
Sure. Yeah. It's a great question. When we were, when we set out to make this project, the idea was how do we tell stories different? How can we tell a story differently when we know where we're going before we begin? Like what an awesome opportunity. If we're making a trilogy, how do we reinvent the, the narrative? And what we had and what we had started with before Lee came onto the project was we had had three scripts that were kind of more of a like repeatable formula, mm-hmm. more of like a final destination or nightmare where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. it comes back or it comes back mm-hmm. in a different way or whatever it may be. Um, but we had the eras set and we were trying to crack how to how to marry them all together like how mm-hmm. to how to create a mystery that is drawing you through all the films and so it became like an a very like extensive process of meeting like every single director in town to see who might have a sensibility that is similar to ours and might have the brain and the mm-hmm. ambition to sign on to a project like that and it's it's a really hard thing because you want to make the movies as soon as possible it was necessary there are very few directors that are working that are working within the studio system that don't have development already set up that Mm -hmm. they're about to direct and what what do you mean by working within the studio system like people who people who are already kind of baked into development, like directors that are already attached to projects that are set up at studios. But do you need, like, do you need that type of director? No, and Lee was not that type of director. Mm-hmm. But but that's the that's the devil you know, right? Like, so it, when you're, it's like okay, well, someone else has vetted this person, so we know that they can handle millions and millions of dollars and. You know, if it's a failure, it's like, boy, well, Paramount thought that they could do it, too. So you can't blame me for hiring them, you know? Yeah, definitely. And there's also there's also a thing where it's three movies and no one had ever greenlit three movies at once before that had net. There was no um, guarantee that there was any way that that would work. So you had to give a studio a certain level of confidence that we were going to pull that off. And was Netflix involved at this point? No, it was still Fox at that point. So it became a a process of meeting everyone. And so at first you're meeting everyone that, you know, the studio likes just as a, as a like early exploration. And then very quickly you're like, who has a, but who has a vision? Who's awesome? Like, cause you, it's like, you're going to make three movies. It's mm-hmm. got to be awesome. <laughs> like you can't not be awesome. You can't not have a really cool person trying to helm it. And we always, I always felt there was like, you wanted them to be kind of indie feeling because I felt mm-hmm. like horror movies just felt so. I felt like it felt so studio and um, yeah, there's some annoying. Yeah, yeah. All of the movies that you're referencing, studios didn't make. Yeah, and they mean? were all yeah. R-rated, and they were all right. kind of like subversive and fucked up and but also teen movies and, and those things like kind of don't go together within uh, at in a way, because when you're in the studio system and there is a theatrical release, they're thinking about things like how is a if this is meant for a 16 year old, how is a 16 year old going to buy a ticket? If it's an already movie, like <laughs> right. it's sure. that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Yeah. But I want, I, we, it was really important to me that it was that way. Um, and so anyway, I met Lee and she was someone who had, I had met, through Adam Wingard, who was actually the, a direct, the director that uh, I began this process with. And she w- she came in to talk to us about being a part of the first iteration of it. And 
she was so opinionated and mm -hmm. awesome and brilliant that it literally almost was like oh you can't like this needs to be yours or not at all like this mm -hmm. needs this needs to be yours and then the second we we parted it immediately occurred to me that like she was the one and and mm -hmm. like because she was like she just got it like you you we sent her the first movie and in the second movie and she called me immediately and she was like I, I'm in love. I need to do this. And she created a 70 page lookbook, a 70 page lookbook that was like the most in depth thing. And it's it like it had 50 images per page. <laughs> literally, it was like insane. It was like a VHS tape, like, like crazy, like beautiful thing that she put together that had that outlined how she would, you know, think mm -hmm. about the music how she would think about the the filmmaking approach like how she would approach and all of that sustained through the entire process like she, it was okay 94 i want to make it classic classically mm -hmm. shot it should feel like a you know scream or if you rewatch scream you're like oh my god like everything looks incredible it's like steady cam, anamorphic. Everything is like perfectly sharp. It's great. It's yeah. great. It's excellent. So she yeah. was like, I want it this way. And then in the 70s film, I want the filmmaking to be sure. more 70s and, and closer, a closer point of view. And I want to keep getting closer and closer to to the center of the story. I want to like take the filmmaker first, make it very objective and very omniscient mm -hmm. point of view, and then keep getting closer and closer to the um to our protagonist of the story until it's like, until that's the only thing you're, you're following. And she didn't have the job at this point. No. She just went and made this on her own. The thing I, I love, I feel like we've heard stories about great lookbooks and, you know, great, like awesome materials. And that feels, that feels kind of apparent to people who I think are paying attention. What the thing that I love that you said that is the most noteworthy is you, you called the first thing you described her as is opinionated and that that you know that's an, that's another way of saying point of view but i think that sometimes it would be easy to be like oh my god this is a job that would change my life it's my dream job yeah, i, wa I want cool like, to say what you want to hear i mm -hmm. never want someone to say what i want to hear i want someone to challenge me i want someone to i always want to know that we're making the same film like that's that's the most important thing is to know that like from the day from day one, I'm sure you've heard this from most of the people that you talk to, but it's the most important thing to know from day one. We are the objective is the same. Like we are mm -hmm. we are trying to make the same movies, and we both know what we're trying to make. And but you want that while also them having a strong point of view. Someone to take all of my notes. I hate that. It's like mm -hmm. you don't want someone to take all. It's if they if you're if you're telling them how to write their thing. It's awful. Like you want someone to be like, I love that note. I love this note. And then, okay, that note, I know it. how to make it my own. <laughs> you know, I know how to make this one. Like you're saying something, I hear you, but I don't totally agree, but I know how to kind of fix it. Fix the thing that I think you're saying that, it, mm -hmm. but it's not exactly how you're saying it. So it's right. like, you don't, you, it's your vision. Like it's your vision as a director and you want to know that someone has that clarity and that point of view and that strength to, um, to fight the whole way through. And it's, and it's a delicate balancing act because you, it's, 
it's politic at some time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's politic with studios. Sometimes it's politic with producers. But and I see she has a writing credit. Also, was that part of your search? Someone that can write and direct? It was important to me that whoever the director was had a a deep sense of story. So mm-hmm. it it was less that they needed to be a director necessarily. I mean, a writer necessarily, but more so that they were really strong developers and really strong storytellers, and they had a really good sense of of character development was really mm-hmm. important in the search and um totally brilliant she's just a totally brilliant human being and really singular and she came in and kind of blew me away in that way and she also is just a badass like she mm-hmm. we you know she had a she had a movie at the time that was at sony and they wanted to green light it but it would have been like in development for years and like the second we started engaging with her they were like oh you're greenlit <laughs> and she was like what the fuck <laughs> she's like i've been trying to make this movie with you guys for like six years what are you talking about like you never wanted to make this movie now that i'm like the cool girl at the ball you want to make this movie yeah. and she literally was like fuck all y'all <laughs> i'm going to make these movies and like it was like a really long process of trying to untangle that and figure out how to get her out of there. But she really stood up for what she believed in and really like was just like, I need to be in love. I, I'm in love. And I can't, I can't ignore that. Corey, I feel like the the two takeaways from this conversation are like, go hard, right? Like be unstoppable. And then also Hollywood is terrible is what you're reminding us. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I, just, I think it's like, there's like two things. There's like, there are great people and there are awful people. That's just the yeah, reality yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah, w- which is true everywhere. Do you know what I mean? I think we just kind of, most people don't talk about their jobs quite in quite the same level of detail. You know, there aren't many podcasts about like how my mom, you know, ha- hated certain teachers she had to teach with or whatever. <laughs> That'd be a good one, though. Yeah, I'm like everyone sucks, but no, I don't. I don't think everyone sucks. I like it's it's a it's a there's so much possibility. It's just, mm-hmm. but it it's pat it's passion based. Like if you have passion and you have a vision and you make sure that, like as a filmmaker, I think you want to display a level of I need to make this, and then mm-hmm. if you have that level of commitment, it will happen eventually. It has to. Yeah, that's awesome. So controversial question: uh, which one? Which is your favorite part? Which Fear Street? I love 78. 78 is my favorite. Nice. And they're all out right now, right? People can see them? People yeah. can see them on Netflix. They're all and out. Do, should they watch them in order? Or does it matter? They have to. They have to watch them in order. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's a trilogy. They all, well, they yeah. all connect. They all connect. They, it takes you backwards in time to solve a mystery. So it's a, it's a more... You can watch them individually, but it's a much more um, it's a oh. much more complete and fulfilling process if you watch them uh, in order. Oh, that's cool. Okay, I didn't realize. I I will watch them in order. I guess I was gonna watch part two first, but I guess I'll start. With no, yeah, I was gonna go historically. Order. Actually, <laughs> very confusing. So your next your next movie, or how how can we find out like what you're doing next? Are you still? Uh, not tweeting. I'm not tweeting. I'm still not tweeting. I'm making this A24 musical in uh, January. And what's the title? Called Fucking Identical Twins. <laughs> oh, and is that is that going to be the theatrical uh, name? Certainly hope so. <laughs> I mean, um, A24, they might go for it, right? No, but what what there is no movie 
I mean, there's Kevin can F himself, right? There's and and end of the effing world, right? Like, I think at this point you're allowed to do yeah, it. I just yeah. want to just put stars everywhere. Yeah. Like, and then in their, in their names, like Josh, yeah, <laughs> star, yeah, star, too. star. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Just really play on it forever. Yeah. But um, thank you guys for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, of course. Oh, um, yeah. Do you have a minute to hang out and endorse with us? Our unpaid endorsements? Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> So my unpaid endorsement, inspired by this conversation, made me think of uh, one of my favorite horror movies that I feel like people don't talk about enough, and it's a film called The Descent. Have you guys seen oh, The yeah. Descent? Yeah. N- Neil Marshall. It's like the underground yeah. movie, right? It is the best, and I saw it under the best circumstances you could possibly have. It, I was at the, it was the Ford Amphitheater LA Film Festival used to have a, a screening uh, series there where they would just do like every Saturday night they'd have whatever the biggest movie of that week was and so I we would just get season passes I didn't know a thing about the film and so like it's a bit of a spoiler to say that there were creatures involved but you don't know that for a long time it's about 30 minutes before you see your first monster of any sort and so it was, and I don't think the most of the audience didn't know what they were in for either. So it's just kind of like this kind of tense cinematic spelunking movie for a long time it is legitimately great. Um, and certainly in my top 10 favorite horror movies of all time. So uh, The Descent is my uh, my unpaid endorsement. Uh, Corey, what you got? Okay, my unpaid endorsement is Bojack Horseman. I love this show so much. Just the best just of the most unexpected tone for a animated show. And you would think it would be super inside baseball about Hollywood, but it really is just like a meditation on depression, which is a completely odd way to come into a, an animated show. And it's like some of the best character development I've ever seen on a television show somehow, which is, um, with a talking horse, odd <laughs> with a talking horse head. So huge endorsement, huge, huge to watch. Awesome. I'm going to burn two good ones. I think Matt, he like keeps a running list of endorsements and then he'll just pick one off. But I'm just like, if I have good ones, I just I love to to give them out. Um, so one is this. Uh, and I bet a lot of people know about both of these, but the New York Times has this anatomy of a song series. Have you guys ever seen that? Is it it's like song so Exploder? good? It's kind of like song Exploder, but this guy, his name is like Joe something. He will just get on a Zoom call or like a FaceTime or something with an artist like I watched Lord today and he's done. He has like uh, tones. Do you know her? She has that song uh, Dance Monkey. Dance Monkey, Dance Monkey, Dance Monkey. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know that song? She's like Australian. But, uh, you know, she had Taylor Swift. Like all these kind of huge um, artists. But uh, he just interviews them and then they'll sometimes they'll bring on a producer it's just like song exploder they talk about where the song came from and how they came up with it and they'll show pieces of the music video and they talk a lot about how they've grown as an artist like lord talked about royals you know her first song she wrote when she was 15 and now she's 24 or something so it's it's just a totally different comes from a different point of view and i just really love it they're like they're like 10 minute episodes um and they're I watch them on the New York Times app, but I think you can watch them on YouTube. Uh, and my other endorsement is a book, and it, I thought of it because we were talking to you about books. It's called Project Hail Mary. It's like one of these books that was for sure optioned before it came out. It's from this guy, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. 
And the reason I even know about it is because this guy I'm a fan of that, Matt, you might know him personally, uh, Ren. He's like part of Corridor mm-hmm. Digital. Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I am familiar. Yeah. Uh, his Twitter handle is Sir Render. Uh, his name is like W-R-E-N, like the bird. But he also is into 3D graphics. So his, his Twitter handle is Sir Render, uh, which I guess also is a word. Um, but he he tweeted, he said, I'm so jealous of whoever, whatever filmmaker gets to make this movie because there's all these like amazing parts to it. So I, I was at an airport and I hunted it down and I found it. And I paid like $32 because I only had the hardcover and it's so big. It took up like half my suitcase, but uh, it's it's a really awesome book. It's about this guy that wakes up on a spaceship and is trying to figure out why he's there and what his goal is. And it's it's written really well if you're into science fiction and mysteries and sci-fi which i guess is the same thing as science fiction then uh you'll really love it it's called project hail mary so that's it well Corey, thanks so much um well as we said you're not super into twitter is there anything any way that people can keep track of the things that you're making or uh or just go to the movies, read Deadline, and you're good to go. Yeah. Just uh, set an alert on Deadline. Alert on Deadline uh, and hope I'm on it one day. <laughs> uh, so if you want to learn more about the things that we talked about on the show, you can go to justshootitpod.com. You can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com if you have questions or concerns or if you just want to say hello. Um, and you can tweet at us across all social media at justshootitpod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlo. And I'm on Instagram. I'm at OKaplan. On Twitter, I'm at Smitey Pileg. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda, our social media manager. Or maybe one last time is Derek Aiello. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks, Corey. We will see you all Thanks, Corey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.